Welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, and all you elk to episode 40 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. Especially nerds this week. Especially nerds this week. Yeah, this is uh, this is definitely one of our more like freewheeling conversations. <laughs> um, and it's it's an interesting one. So we have uh, we have John Newell back on the show this week mm-hmm. to join us for Mind Grapes and also for a conversation about being a fan. Yeah. What does that mean? Or, and where, when do we transition from being fans from liking something into being a part of the fandom? And what does it mean to be part of a fandom? And yeah, and what how do we has like? the, the yeah, phenomenon it's, it's, of fandom kind of grown over the years? And you know, what happens when you try to identify yourself based on the things that you love? And yeah, yeah, uh, we sort of we dance around that topic a bit, and it's it's an interesting conversation, I think, for sure. And and it's very much from our subjective points of oh, view. Oh, absolutely. So we're not trying to <laughs> extol any you know objective truths about fandom, but this is very much like three nerds' perspectives on um, on what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So what and else yeah, we got? my great point got. Uh, We've got a book. We've got a little bit of live theater in the form of Monty Python and a couple of female-centric shows to binge watch. So that's kind of what we've been up to. So I guess without further ado, let's get this one started. I'm Allie Sullivan. And I'm Sam Mills. And one of us. One of us. (laughs) So Sam, what's been on your mind grapes this week? Um, my main grapes are are very fresh, to extend the metaphor, uh, because I literally went this morning um, to go see Monty Python Live. Oh, cool! Full title being Monty Python Live, parentheses mostly, because yeah. there are some like pre-recorded bits and some bits from their old shows. Right. Uh, so basically, this is a big series of performances they've been doing. I think for the last at least the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was on at eleven thirty here at the movie theater here because it was on it like what 7 30 in the evening uh in london mm-hmm. at the o2 which is like a big arena there like yeah easy place uh and it was fantastic it was oh, really good. really fun um they did a lot of the classic bits they did you know the dead parrot and they did the lumberjack song mm-hmm. and they did a lot of things that were sort of instantly recognizable mm-hmm. um but they had a few new bits that were really funny there was they That's opened good. with the five of them uh, so it was all the surviving members so graham chapman unfortunately passed away a long time ago 1989 but the rest of them were there mm-hmm. and uh it opened with them sitting around this sort of like tropical lounge in their white suits and tails um <laughs> talking about how rough they'd had it as as kids and how yeah. kids these days just and of course because it's Monty Python it just got completely ridiculous <laughs> we had a house with holes in the roof and then the next person goes well you were lucky to have a house there were 26 of us living in a corridor yeah. and then well, when I said house I actually meant a hole in the ground with a tarpaulin over the top but what it was a house to us and it just kept going on and on and on and you know our dad would beat us senseless when we got home from our 18 hours in the factory all the way up to you know our dad would just cut us in two with an axe every night and beat us to sleep and whatever I know. <laughs> the kids these days, when you tell them how it used to be, they just don't believe you. <laughs> it was great. Nice. But uh, the whole thing was so fun. Um, they did some really big musical numbers. Okay. So they had a whole cast of like young, energetic dancers to back them all up. And um, <laughs> There was one guy in particular, we were speculating about him maybe being Palin's son or something, oh. but he was sort yeah. of the... The star of the show he had a lot of the singing roles. In, okay. Um, like that, that did spam and um, and every sperm is sacred and songs like that. Mm-hmm. And and he sort of took and on the lead like in those. Palin? 
well, it was the way they were interacting at the end when everyone oh. was on stage that we were like, oh. I don't think Palin's gay, so maybe no, that's his son. So. I, I think, think Chapman was. Yeah, Chapman definitely. Well, yeah, yeah. Didn't he die of AIDS? I don't know. I Okay, I really should know that. Yeah. My dad is a huge fan. <laughs> well, and this is the thing. Like, I've seen a ton of Monty Python sketches because mm-hmm. you can't not have that, Of course, grown not up that and... straight people can't die of AIDS, that's I true. should say. But you know, at the time during that, that died, era, though, yeah. during that era, I mean, it was even yeah. more common than it is now. I was always more into okay, Faulty Towers as a kid Me too. than Monty Python. <laughs> Me too. But... But I did recognize a lot of these sketches, and even the ones that I didn't were still really funny. And I was definitely, I was definitely raised on Python. Yeah, like I didn't seek Faulty Towers yeah, until several years ago. Yeah, you came to it ago. late. Yeah. yeah, no, I came to it really late. Um, because my, I mean, my mother just lo- she loved the Python, and so I remember there was one time we were uh, in Costco when I was about thirteen, and uh, they had like the DVD set of yep. all of Flying Circus. My mom like yeah. had a panic attack and like, like purchased <laughs> it immediately. So I feel Faulty Towers is like crueler and bleaker than Python overall. Like Python could be awfully black, like yeah. really yeah. dark. Yeah. But it also was like just kind of wild and anarchic and funny and absurd. Whereas yeah. well, in a lot of ways Faulty they're the functions of the decades that they were created in, right? That's I mean an interesting Python point. is much more sixties and, and Well, I'm a, I also wonder Faulty whether Towers is much more seventies. Yeah. Seventies, eighties, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I also wonder whether it's just like Cleese being the creative um, core of yeah, powers. not being tempered yeah. as much by the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose you could think of it as like a, a Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett thing, right? That <laughs> Gaiman tends to get darker when he's working by himself, whereas mm. if you look at something like Pratchett Good Omens, it's kind of lightened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was so fun. There were a couple of nice little tributes to Chapman, which was great. Oh, um, and <laughs> even at moments when they kind of lost the thread, which yeah. like they're all in their seventies, so it yeah. happened a couple of times. <laughs> It was just such a joy to see them all up there just having fun with each other. Like there was yeah. this, the, during the during the dead parrot sketch, Cleese and Palin just totally lost the thread <laughs> of what they were doing. <laughs> they, but they rolled with it. It was great. So it was like SNL almost or something. Yeah. yeah. There were a yeah. few moments that felt a lot like those sort of classic moments <laughs> of people breaking. Um, and it's funny. I mean, because I'm not one of those people who's like this obsessive Monty Python fan that watches the sketches all the time. When you haven't seen a python sketch for a while you forget how simultaneously like really crass and really smart yeah they are mm-hmm. it's this bizarre combination they're of really those two things. both crude and cerebral yeah 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 and i kept thinking like that they're such a product of their time in terms of like they're such a product of the education that they had that they mm-hmm. had the opportunity to get mm-hmm. like to have this sort of to be at cambridge at that time and getting yeah. this oxford was half right uh, I think I think they were mostly Cambridge because they were mostly in the footlights, but there yeah. could have been some Oxfordians as well. Like, I think two of them are from Oxford mm. and then two from Cambridge, and then I'm not sure about yeah. everyone else or something like that. Yeah, but it was sort of probably very much the same education you yeah. would get again, both oh, of them, yeah. right? So oh, this yeah. this sort of classical liberal education, mm-hmm. and then getting to spend time around all of these sort of really smart and also really kind of zany characters yeah and also living in a time when sort of this counterculture was being mm-hmm. created like mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, it, make, it makes you think about you know people people talk about whether or not we still need the sort of classical liberal education and i think well you wouldn't you, things like this wouldn't mm-hmm. exist without that yeah like, totally the way that they're 100%. sort of able to be so absurd and so crass but also like 
just cut to this well, sort of human core of things. And like <laughs> to properly appreciate a lot of Python, you sort you of have, have to be to aware of a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like there are, you know, like the, the thinking, philosopher's football game. I was game thinking and stuff that exactly. Actually, I showed yeah. that one. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that's a perfect and example. If you, if you don't yeah. know a little bit at least about philosophy and classical history. Yeah, that's history, not going to be funny to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, and there were there was less laughter in the theater than yeah. <laughs> at that one than there was at, at other things. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they sort of... I don't know. They don't. They never obfuscate. Like they're very. Yeah. They talk about what they're talking about, mm-hmm. but they're also so smart about it. They don't yeah. dumb it down. Yeah. It's not a dumb. Yeah. Show, mm-hmm. at all. And they, I don't know. I was struck too about. I wouldn't call them feminist necessarily. No. But <laughs> I think that in a lot of ways they're a lot more like equal opportunity in their humor and in their writing. They're than, just misanthropes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't um, say they make any arguments for like the equality of the sexes um, or anything like that. Particularly, well, there was a song, and Maybe I don't know whether it was a new. <laughs> I don't know whether it was a new song or not, but there was this great song that at first started with Idol just singing about how wonderful it is to have a penis, mm-hmm. but eventually the rest of the singers came out, and there was a verse about how wonderful it is to have a vagina, mm-hmm. and then a verse about how wonderful it is to have a bottom. And I was like, That's such a great encapsulation of like. I don't know. They could be a little more male-centric than they are in their yeah. humor. Like, mm-hmm. I think they do make a bit of an effort. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I don't know, there were definitely parts of it that were like, you guys really are like 70-year-old, old white British men. Yeah. There um, are moments of stunning misogyny in I like Chinese, Python, for example. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but even that was smart enough to sort of pass for being slightly ironic yeah. or like I think they're more aware of yeah. of the the possible offensiveness in that than a mm-hmm. lot of other yeah. like comics of their age would be. And yeah. you, you, know, you have to look at it all in context. Like oh, yeah. these were written like half a century ago yeah. now. So yeah. <laughs> And it's amazing how well they stand up. I mean even yep. going back and watching the original sketches, they're so they're they're immediately accessible and immediately funny. Well mm-hmm. and that I think that speaks to the idea of like what the material they're drawing from, which, I mean, some of it is embedded in the culture of uh, of the 60s and stuff, absolutely. But, mm-hmm. like, look at the material they, they work on, like Arthurian myth in the matter yeah. of Britain or, like, the Bible, you know, like, or philosophy. Like, these are things that it's not like um, some comedy now that is so topical and indebted to the current zeitgeist that in 10 yeah. years it'll be dated. Yeah, in five and, years you're mm-hmm. not going to understand yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it was definitely, I mean, they, they showed their age a little, but it was so, a lot of that stuff is just, like you're saying, so universal and so tapped into these sort of yeah. things that everyone is at least peripherally aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it was less like, I don't know, when you watch, like, Don Rickles or somebody these mm-hmm. days, it's very much yeah. like listening to someone's old, rambling Republican grandfather or something, right? <laughs> whereas, whereas with these guys, it's it's a lot more like, you know, your old hippie uncle or something that's yeah. a little bit out of touch, but like he, he really has his heart in the right place <laughs> and he knows yeah. what he's talking about. Like, yeah. 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 No, it was, it was so much fun. And the end was very, it really did feel like the end. Like they came on and mm-hmm. their encore was always look on the bright side of life. Mm-hmm. And they encourage not just everyone in the O2, but everyone all around the world sitting in theaters, watching them to sing along, which, which mm-hmm. we did. We couldn't really hear whether everybody was doing it or not. Um, and they were, you know, Encur- they would encourage people to sort of say goodbye to them. Yeah. And then at the end, when they flashed up Graham Chapman's name and his birth date mm-hmm. and death date, they also flashed up Monty Python 1969 to 2014. 
Mm. So it was very much a sort of this is the last time you're going to see this on stage, yeah. which is probably probably true. Um, yeah. But it was so fun. It was just it really, yeah. That's really awesome. a joy to see them all get so into it after all mm. this time. Which was your favorite uh, movie, Allie? My favorite movie? Uh, probably just by virtue of the fact that I've I've seen it the largest number of times. The movie would probably be Holy Grail. Mm. But like if I I could watch... I could watch Flying Circus yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. Like it's I've just, been dipping yeah. into the DVD set because Emily has it and I'm definitely yeah. going to do it even more now. Yeah. So it's nice that, you know, with these live shows and with them being in the consciousness again that that's happening. Yeah. They, yeah. Didn't, do, they didn't do my favorite sketch, which, which is Eric the Hafferby. Uh. <laughs> I do like Eric the <laughs> But they did the dead parrot, so I can understand why they wouldn't want to do two sketches set in a pet, pet shop. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I also uh, I think I think my favorite sketch would have to be um, the cheese shop one. Uh, I was thinking of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I've seen that one. Oh, good. it's really good. Uh, I can't remember. I guess I I know it mostly from I also had a, a CD like an audio CD mm, of the Pythons mm-hmm. that I just listened to you know constantly as a <laughs> as a as a youth. Um, and it's uh, yeah, guys. He's like he was reading in a bookshop, and then he comes over and he says, "I fell, I fell over a mite peckish." And, and so they just start, started listing kinds of cheese, and the cheese shop is out of all of the cheese. Oh, that's. I think that's part of the the parrot sketch, or anyway, they put it together somehow in this oh, one. Oh, interesting. Like, oh, weird. They did a lot actually of. Um, of transitioning from one thing to another. So they would do yeah. one old sketch and then use it as a transition to a song or something, or they would do a new sketch. Mm-hmm. And then they did a sketch where someone was, um, was being interviewed by a, like a job placement agency. He was an accountant mm-hmm. and he wanted to change jobs. And it was a yeah. whole sketch in itself of like, this guy wanted to be a lion tamer, but he was convinced that, that lions, oh. that anteaters were lions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then that the slowly transitioned an old into, one, though. I think, I think maybe what they've done is take pieces of, of them kind and sort of, of change them, them together. So they yeah. used that one as a transition into, well, actually, if you really want to know what I've really, really wanted, wanted to, to be, be a lumberjack. Right? Yeah. And yeah. actually, yeah. they sort of, they faked you out a little by being like systems yeah. analyst. But then, of course, they launched into <laughs> the lumberjack yeah. song. Lumberjack yeah. is yeah. originally the barber, right? The homicidal barber. Yeah. 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 So they, they played around with that a bit, which was really neat. Yeah. That sort of tradition of like remix that comes out of like not just improv, but yeah. remixing things, I think really mm-hmm. does come well, out of like British comedy from that yeah. era. Like you look at the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. And all the iterations of that have slightly different configurations of the same sketches. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, Python has always been like modular bits that segue really weirdly yeah. from mm-hmm. one thing to another. Yeah. It's kind know. of always been part of the point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would highly recommend getting a hold of pieces of this new show and also, yeah, uh, yeah dipping back into the old stuff. Well, I'm sure they're going to release the, the last show on Blu ray or something oh, like Blu-ray that. Yeah. Something. yeah. Yeah. What about you, John? Um, so I've um, been doing a few things. I've been reading uh, a novel called The Claw of the Conciliator, um, which is the second in a series uh, called The Book of the New Sun by mm. Gene Wolfe. Um, which uh, came out in the early 80s. And it's something that um, I've been meaning to read for like a long, long time. Um, it's part of the Dying Earth subgenre, which is like a, like a genre that's really sort of near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, I mentioned Jack Vance on a previous yeah. uh, podcast. And like Vance is considered a seminal author in that genre. Yeah, um, doesn't so he even have like a work called The Dying called Earth? Called The Dying Earth, yeah. So what, what defines that genre? So it's not post-apocalyptic, but kind of. So post-apocalyptic fiction is usually like something cataclysmic has happened, and now we're sorting out what's happened afterwards. Hmm. Dying Earth is um, 
more like it's just the year 1 billion AD, like the Earth's oh, okay. ridiculously far future kind of thing. Okay. So like a classic example is the time traveler, for example, might be considered an early dying Earth story because it's set in the far, 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 far future. And like humans have uh, devolved into Morlocks and Eloy. Not and the like man-eating Morlocks. Oh, the, yeah. the time machine. The, oh, yeah. the time machine, okay. not the Sorry. time traveler. I thought that's Sorry. what you yeah. <laughs> That is what I meant. Sorry, I just misspoke. But yes, the, the time machine. Um, and it's like subsequent works and stuff like that um and yeah there's a lot of stuff written around the sort of turn of the 19th century that kind of um is the night weird mix of like optimism and pessimism yeah usually it's pretty entropic like you know things are winding down and like Mm. the sun is but we've lasted that long well yeah that's true (laughs) sometimes not unchanged but yeah we've at least not made ourselves extinct usually Mm. um but yeah um so it's set in in the far 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 future in um, what I think might be far future South America, hmm. but the climate is so screwed up and weird that it's really hard to say for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably deliberately ambiguous. Um, but it they're a fascinating series, and I've only recently got my hands on the second one. And I'm sure I could have got it if... I'd really tried like through Amazon and paid a bunch of money for it. It's always or, more fun to keep browsing till you yeah, find them. Yeah, I surreptitiously found it in Pulp Fiction the other day and mm. completed the set of four. That so I've had the first one and number three and four for ages <laughs> oh, and ages. No. Read the first one and then was like, do I just go on to number three? No, I can't. Mm. So this is the second in the series, um, and they're fascinating. Like Gene Wolfe is an amazing author, and I think most of these novels have been won Hugo's and Nebula's or at least been nominated mm-hmm. for them. Um, so the, the main character is um, Severian who is he's writing, it's in first person and he claims to have like a completely photographic memory like what's it called? Eidetic memory? Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so he, it's like justifying the um, that old narratorial conceit of like I will sit down and tell you a story from beginning right. to end that happened yeah. 30 years ago yeah. but it's sort of quasi <laughs> it, justified it fades into memory and suddenly there's direct quotes from yeah. everybody yeah. Mm-hmm. so he's claiming and but he's deeply unreliable like there are moments when you're like no 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 you're crazy and it, this did not happen this way but there, he claims to be perfectly reproducing uh, the events is that as they happen like deliberate on the part of the author the yes. sort of unreliability of that absolutely oh, okay. Interesting. and occasionally Severian comes off like almost half admits that he's probably mad and stuff like that hmm. but he's a fascinating character so he's um, he grows up in this enormous fortress like a very Gormengast esque fortress um, called the Citadel and um, he is raised um, in a sort of clan or guild of torturers and executioners um but they very much view like it's a far future but technology is deeply degraded like we've run out of resources we probably once had a galaxy spanning empire but now we don't like it's everything's been forgotten like we don't have the capabilities we once had but there are all these abandoned relics lying around everywhere so the world is sort of reverted to a quasi-medieval state and it's ruled by this sort of dictatorial totalitarian leader called the otark or autark um but so you know it's very much indebted to how medieval executioners were generally sort of portrayed which is like they're just craftsmen like they're practicing a craft they're not sadists you know they're not like 
psychopaths necessarily. This is just like a public service that needs to be done. Like mm. you, you need to torture people and and kill them for like and this also service collect to the, the state. trash. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's very much how he he approaches his job really matter of factly. And like the the first or the second book, this novel I'm reading now, which I'm only partway through, it starts with like a really detailed um account of an execution like a beheading that he's doing um with this really interesting sword um called terminus est uh which has like a male and a female side like one side for beheading men and one side for beheading women and it's supposed to have a um a core of what i think is meant to be mercury so like there's a little channel filled with mercury so that it becomes heavier on the downstroke like as the mercury rushes to the tip of the blade anyway so it's this really super detailed account and he talks all about like i was kind of nervous but didn't really realize it and these are all the different like ritual things i had to do like this particular salute and here is my role and i'm not supposed to say anything and all of these different um things he's doing leading up to the execution and then once it's over he's like he says something along the lines of i performed many 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 more of these executions throughout my travels but for the interests of like relieving the tedium of this read and not making this uh book longer than all the libraries of earth uh I'll, i'm just going to abridge them so you can assume whenever i reach a new village or something like that that i yeah i carried out whatever executions and tortures they required like just as sort of like a cobbler would mend shoes kind of thing, <laughs> wow. like that kind of thing. So he's a fascinating character for that reason. And they're really neat books. They're really f- interesting. Yeah. Do you think the sort of, like that, that genre you're talking about it yeah. sort of having started like around the turn of the century, yeah. like, do you think that that was, that was some of these authors looking at the decline of the British Empire and, yes. and thinking forward into so what that was going to look like? One of the like, reasons I'm reading this is that I'm sort of playing, I'm considering postdoc projects right okay. now and uh, looking ahead to what I might write on after I complete my PhD. Hmm. And Dying Earth is sort of one yeah. possibility because it starts really in the period that I'm interested in and then goes... Um, throughout the 20th century and gets developed in all sorts of interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I definitely think it owes a lot to the kind of like Fonda Siecla, Degeneration stuff, but also a lot to just a sudden awareness of the vastness of geological time or like deep time as hmm. it's sometimes yeah. called. Yeah. So like the Victorians for a long, they, they're really the first people to discover or conceptualize the real age of the earth in terms of like a truly vast amount of time. And to realize how small not only their empire, but like the human species lifespan is, Mm -hmm. according to that. And so you can think of people like Kelvin and Darwin as Mm. being both really important figures in this kind of thing. Like the recognition of like thermodynamics and the fact that everything is eventually going to run out and will approach chaos and entropy. Um, and also the realization... Entropy as a concept instead of like things being cyclical or right, whatever. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and also the, the realization, yeah, that humans are an extremely recent creature mm-hmm. and we're not the center of everything and that for most of the universe's existence we weren't around but other things were there's that great carl sagan sort of visualization about like putting mm-hmm. your arms out yeah. and humans have existed for like the length of your of half of your pinky nail or yeah. whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah so i think it's it's partly about um it's partly about an awareness of the vastness of time mm-hmm. and it's partly about decline and the idea of degeneration and I think it's partly just about this is the time when science fiction is really appearing as a genre and coalescing. Yeah. And so 
once you start imagining futures, it's yeah, tempting to start imagining further and further and further futures. Because yeah. mm-hmm. um, a lot of that early science fiction is about like very near future or even present day, mm-hmm. uh, like Frankenstein being a seminal example. Yeah. It's clearly set yeah. in the early 19th century or even the late mm-hmm. 18th century. They might, I'm not sure if they have actual dates. I think they might. Frankenstein, they I might. I think like the letters are dated, but they might not be year dated. The yeah. That make yeah. It up. They might. Yeah. Oh, I, I think they probably that. say like seventeen dash dash. Yeah. That's oh, probably. Yeah. 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 Right. That's probably yeah. So it's like ambiguous eighteenth century or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But so even then, the early, like the recent past in in some early science fiction or like mm-hmm. twenty thousand leagues into the sea or yeah, a lot of those things. Even the time machine, in a sense, mm-hmm. even though it's far future, it's also. Yeah, kind you're of still sort of day. rooted in the present because yeah. of the character you're following. Yeah. Right. So like a lot of it is like that, but I think that as time goes on, people started to imagine further and further, further and further futures. Yeah. So that's an interesting development and uh, interesting moment in science fiction. How far did Heinlein go with his his charts? Like he definitely went up to the end of the 20th century, but I don't. Know I don't he, know. Yeah. I'm I'm not that up on my Heinlein. I just remember here reading stories about him. Sort of, he mapped out the. The future and all of his novels sort of take place in the same universe if you think mm-hmm. about it that way because he's got this sort of chronological right. map of things happening and like, there's this great like spider robinson column yeah. um, called the crazy years that he used to write for the globe and mail and he called it that because heinlein had just labeled the 1990s the crazy years and moved <laughs> <Nice>. on <laughs> like, but i wonder how far he went like if he was that kind of speculator. i don't know mm-hmm. that's an interesting mm-hmm. question you know i mean sometimes there are works set in the far future but they're not necessarily set on earth Hmm. Um, and I don't think those generally count as dying Earth. So, like, Dune is a great example of something that is clearly set in the ridiculously far future. Okay. But Earth is, like, a distant memory, right? Or it's mm-hmm. mythical. Or, hmm. like, or it's like, our homeland. like, Firefly. Firefly, yeah. That's obviously the far future. Hmm. The or foundation, right? The medium yeah. far future foundation, yeah. Whereas dying Earth is always specifically set on Earth. Oh, okay, so it's not just future. that the, the human empire is in decline or whatever. It's that yes. Earth itself is involved. Earth is always okay. involved within the dying Earth. This is the far future of this planet, hmm. um, which is really interesting. Um, and sometimes there are other worlds involved. But, like, yeah, it's it's a very strange subgenre. Um, but there's a, quite a number of works within it. Like Clark Ashton Smith wrote these series called Zothik, which are sort of like... Um, he's like an early 20th century weird fiction author, sort of mm. contemporary of, of Lovecraft and a poet and a sculpture, Californian. But he wrote these stories that are very much like sort of Thousand and One Nights style, but in the far future on a new Pangea. So like a supercontinent um, mm. where all the continents are fused. And then Vansta's Dying Earth, which is very much like a sort of science fantasy, like magic has returned in the last days of the Earth. Huh. But magic may or may not just be an advanced form of mathematics, however that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and then there's all sorts of others, like um, Inviraconium is a big one uh, by M. John Harrison, and yeah, Gene Wolfe's um, Book of the New Sun. And then there's a companion uh, series to this, I believe, uh, called... I, think book of the long sun um which is set on a generation ship but huh. in the same setting same so these are the people who like left earth but hmm. they've like forgotten what their ship is and it's that old trope but with like like gene wolf is such a brilliant kind of author that like everything is a reference everything is sort of been exhaustively researched so it, it's like the richest possible version of that that huh. thing yeah it sounds like you've gotten a good start on your bibliography already <laughs> yeah well, this is why i mean that's naturally why i like 
turn to that subgenre because I already know it really yeah. well. And not a lot has been written that I've not too much has been written compared to some other hmm. uh, sort of a genre type um, areas. But yeah, we'll see. Awesome. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Allie? Well, um, I've been trying to get my last kind of uh, push of things before <laughs> you we start, start working. working. <laughs> Yay. So, um, so I've just been like binge watching a stupid amount of TV. I kind All of the Netflix right yeah, into your veins. I reached sort of a saturation point with Skyrim where I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I think I need to like just take a step back for for a little while. So I took a few days away from Skyrim, which was probably you know healthy. Um, and uh, I watched a couple of shows, kind of along the same vein, really, which is kind of funny. I watched um, a British show called My Mad Fat Diary. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a really sweet show, um, you know, as as a person, uh, as a girl growing up of of a not skinny variety. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of things in the show that I could relate to. Um, it's told from the perspective of 16-year-old Ray Earl, who uh, the show begins with her uh, leaving the psychiatric ward because she has had a suicide attempt. And um, so it's about her kind of trying to reintegrate herself. And it's uh, set in in, uh, in Lincolnshire and Britain, of course. So um, she's 16. So she's heading into college, which is a whole new mm-hmm. um, level of education The system in Britain. I'm sure you know it better than I do, Sam. But yeah, um, you finish in year 11. And then yeah. You, yeah. So um, so it's about her keeping this diary and so she kind of um she kind of gets meets up with a girl she was friends with really close friends with when they were young children um you know her friend represents this kind of gorgeous um you know regular teen girl kind of thing and Mm -hmm. ray always feels like weirdly in competition but also like a kindred spirit and like a sisterhood because they've been friends for so long. And it's a really, um, a really interesting dynamic. And they're the, you know, the dynamic of their relationship changes throughout the series as Ray realizes kind of that, um, you know, that her life isn't quite as simple and magical and wonderful as it seems. And um, it's a, it's a really, a really good show. It's uh, since it's British, I think there are only yeah, a few episodes many. a season yeah. and there are only two seasons and I don't mm. think they're going to, put out anymore because the the final episode is really kind of a really nice finish like a Mm. nice end i've Um, I've always heard really good things about that show but i've never seen much of it yeah it's it's definitely like it's definitely cute um i mean it's got some heavy stuff too of course it deals with you know teen suicide and obesity and and you know dealing with anxiety attacks and all this kind of stuff and Mm. um and it's really interesting. So binge watched that in about two days, <laughs> and then I also uh, binge watched HBO's Girls. So hmm. you know, slightly older generation, but um, it's it's kind of funny. You and I had a little bit of a conversation about Girls a little while, like, a few days ago. And yes, how... my gut instinct has always been that I would not enjoy that show. But yeah, I'm listening to you talk about it. Well, it's it's really interesting because you know it's it's a show that's been getting a lot of media attention, and uh, Lena Dunham, of course, getting a lot of media attention mm-hmm. um, and I think that she's you know I think the show is represents the 20 something generation um, you know it's 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 kind of also one of these funny things where like I fall into the exact age group that the show is kind of meant to represent See, I think I only 
always in a contrarian kind of way really resent anything that tries to like encapsulate millennials like i hated yeah. undergrads or, or wait is undergrads the cartoon show undeclared for exactly that reason. oh i, I like <laughs> i think i liked undeclared because i was in high school when that came out so it seemed really glamorous to me and also jay baruchel is adorable Oh, I was exactly the same age as those people when it came out. Okay. Fuck you. That is not how my life is. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But uh, yeah, those dorm rooms were huge. Dorm rooms are always huge on TV. I'm like, have you guys ever actually been in a dorm room? Uh, I had a double room to myself, so I don't know what to tell you. It's like Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Yeah. Gilmore Girls? It's supposed to be Yale, so it's like slightly more believable. I don't really know whether Yale dorm rooms are that big but it looks like she has a house to herself (laughs) anyway that's kind of a point (laughs) um but yeah like and it's it's funny because I think that the way like the attention that it's been getting in the media and stuff um I think from my perspective the show is is much more it's kind of critical but it's also it's I feel like it's trying to be honest you know, like um, you hear these characters and they're kind of glorified, but they're all like kind of they're not horrible people, but they're all pretty selfish. And, you know, and they all definitely have this kind of, um, you know, 20 something New York attitude of they should all be following their dreams and their dreams everyone's are all, a special. snowflake. Yeah, everyone's definitely a special snowflake in that show. Um and it's it's really interesting. One of the things I do appreciate about it is it um, all of the girls like kind of like um, I all of the girls kind of have their own personalities, you know. And that's something that because like in <laughs> I feel like that that's not something like that we should be like <laughs> applauding. Yeah, but I, I take your point. I think. But like, sure. But you know, like even in Sex in the City, like it is very much referencing Sex in the City in yeah. an, an extremely like it. it the show the show knows that that is that is its mm. you know that that is its it's reacting it's, to it it's reacting but also pays homage to and owes a lot of its storylines to because mm. you know it's it follows for 20 something girls in new york and their right. experiences so it's like um, an intertext for or something like yeah that. definitely and you know like the main character is a writer so you've got your 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 carrie bradshaw person mm-hmm. um but i've you know watching lena dunham talk about it too it's it's like it's it's telling the story um of these people like before they've really figured themselves out and it's kind of commenting on how in you know in the kind of the current to use john's word the current zeitgeist Mm -hmm. like people are figuring themselves out much later than perhaps Mm -hmm. they did in the past so like um when you watch sex in the city all of these women pretty much they have a lot of bits of their life figured out they've got their careers figured out for sure yes they're still dealing with relationships but they all seem to be gainfully employed and making money and able to spend a certain amount of that money Mm -hmm. whereas everyone on this show i mean it's it's also kind of reacting to, you know, the post-2008 job market world, which is mm-hmm. scary because, like, you know, one of them loses her job right away and she had it. She was the only one who had, like, a good job. And then the writer is the one who kind of should be taking any job that comes her way but is still really picky and idealistic about, like, wanting to be a writer, like... And then, you know, and then you've got the one that's still in school and you've got um, one who's just a complete artistic free spirit freaking weirdo. <laughs> so... It's it's kind of an interesting show and, you know, another one that I definitely 
binge watched. Um, it does sound like it's trying to go for a, a more honest depiction of millennials than maybe it, it looks is. like it yeah. is doing in the press. I think I, think I get, and I, think, I don't think I'm alone in this, get, like, get my hackles up when anybody tries to sort of define my generation or like empathize with my generation or whatever in some way I'm always like this is a really dangerous territory it's a sort of weird like thing that's going on like millennial baiting is becoming a hobby of writers online Mm -hmm. and like Pot, like diagnosing when you hear someone use the term millennial you yeah. almost immediately yeah. assume they're using it in a derogatory way yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i no, think that's, that's one of the interesting things about the show is like it's not i mean i mean lena dunham is what 26 now 27 like so she yeah she's pretty much she dead is, center i mean i'm, a, I'm yeah. an old millennial so yeah like we're we're kind of on the on the cusp so like i think that it's 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 interesting that the perspective is coming from from internally. Like I feel like the reason, one of the reasons, maybe that I personally feel it's it's kind of an honest depiction, um, in that it's neither glorifying nor is it um, you know denigrating mm-hmm. the millennial generation. And I think that that's really because it's coming from someone who is so intrinsically part of that. Like she is she's experiencing it and yes she does have some certain advantages because of her upbringing and because where she is and um you know that kind of stuff she she's of course you know she's very privileged and she acknowledges that Mm um but she's taking advantage of her position of privilege to tell this story on a wider scale right yeah because i I know when we talked about this off the air that was another reason for my knee-jerk reaction against girls was that was that between her and um, David Mamet's daughter and like sort of all of the people who are involved in this show are, are already very connected to that sort mm-hmm. of like Brooklyn artist scene, the more successful part of the Brooklyn yeah. artist scene. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. And, and the thing about them is they do have a certain amount of talent. Like I don't, I, I think yes, there is, there's always nepotism and that kind of thing. But if they weren't, if they weren't actually talented at this, mm. it probably would not have gone as, as far as it has. Mm. Um, so do I think it deserves a lot of the media attention it gets? Uh, perhaps not. And I think that the media attention that it does get makes it out to be making out our generation to be something amazing and something great when it's really like it's I think it's really commenting on it as much mm. as it is, you know, trying to trying right. to make us look okay. The way you're describing it is reminding me of that sketch from when Daniel Radcliffe was on SNL a couple of years ago. Oh, I don't remember that one. And it it was basically it was a it was a talent show. Mm-hmm. Um but it was all of these kids who were supposed to be in like their early 20s. Right. doing either really easy things mm-hmm. or doing kind of difficult things like juggling or whatever really badly yeah but feeling like they deserved accolades for it there's a great gif of Daniel Radcliffe that goes around on the, on the internet a lot from the right. sketch where he's basically like I tried so I should get all the awards or whatever you know yeah. it's sort of a it's that depiction of millennials as sort of like as the special snowflake generation yeah as the well I tried to do this so you should just give me all the stuff anyway yeah, yeah. and I mean sometimes so it's, it's good to know that they're taking yeah. more nuanced like yeah, because yeah, the whole point some, of the sketch was sort of yeah. to make fun of that attitude, right? And yeah. It sounds like they're... They are kind of making fun of that attitude, and sometimes it does get a little irritating where, uh, like, especially the main character, Lena Dunham's character, is sort of made out, like, everyone does, like, she's the writer, everyone does love her writing. Like, right. everyone says she is such a great writer. You don't really actually see a whole lot of her writing, which is always mm. something that kind of irritates me but that's great because maybe everyone's just saying that maybe yeah, maybe it's a meta commentary but you're right i think shows can yeah. sometimes fall into that like i'm thinking um 
I remember watching the first episode of Community for the first time, and yeah. one of the things that I really loved about it was the fact that they tell you Jeff's a really good lawyer, and then they show you him being a really good Within lawyer like right away. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like they, they make the effort to write him as a good lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah, they don't. They pencil don't... sharks and Ben Affleck. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So, so, yeah, I mean, and. Um, just like I just think it's just thinking about binge watching too mm-hmm. is it's such a such a weird I feel like it's such a weird way to consume media that has been facilitated by our like our, by our recent you know mm-hmm. media revolutions you know and it's I'm impressed it's weird. in some ways that you're talking about this so reflectively because I think one thing that binge watching can do is sort of is make you more uncritical than you otherwise would be oh yeah huh. I, I did that with Fringe and I got just so into it that it wasn't until f- much later when other people started pointing out problems with it that I was like, oh yeah, I guess it does sort of start to like drop the character of Olivia as a hero later on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was so in the world that I was totally not being critical of it at all. Yeah. Well, I think it helps that, uh, I mean, Girls also is uh, short seasons. It's an HBO so- show, so it's only 13 episodes per season. Or I think, no, I think it's 10, 11, 12 maybe, hmm. like for a second and third season. So there's not that many, many episodes to look at either. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's been interesting. Right. And there's a part of me that's really looking forward to you know having better things to do with my time <laughs> <laughs> than to you know binge watch girls. But um, but yeah, it's really interesting. I think that it definitely should be watched with a grain of salt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like is there anything that shouldn't? I, I guess. Well, <laughs> I mean, from from my very critical perspective sure. of everything. Yeah, but like. Yeah, I think it's I think it's worth it's worth watching. Hmm. There's a lot of weird sex in it, so you know that's enough to keep you interested. <laughs> and Donald Glover the is there at some point, right? So. Oh, for like a couple of episodes, and he plays a really weird character. <laughs> he plays an like uh, an Ayn Rand loving, fiscally uh, conservative Republican young black man man i need to youtube just that yes just like if yeah you can just youtube yeah no it's so weird and and it's yeah it's funny he's showing his acting chops i guess apparently he actually is like uh he's he's a better actor than a rapper i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just gonna say it he's a good stand-up oh he's great he's great yeah anyway um so binge watching is weird and uh girls is kind of weird and it makes me feel weird things. I feel like I feel like all of our suggestions this week are sort of are, are weird but interesting things. That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, I mean, th- this is not weird for me. Yeah, but <laughs> but as a sort of sub sub genre, yeah, like it is, yeah, yeah, it's sufficiently fringe. <laughs> well, I guess so. Then that'll just wrap us up for the mind grapes. Uh, Sam definitely recommends going to see the Monty Python live or yes, if, yeah, if it's, it's in your area, if it's replaying or, you know, I mean, just look up clips online. I'm yeah. sure there's lots of them by this point. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a joy to see them all still be so funny and so delightful. <laughs> and John suggests just jumping into the dying earth genre and uh, the book, day of the new book of the new sun is a good place sun. to start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe read Vance first, <laughs> but yeah, he, this is good. Yeah. And if, uh, <laughs> If you're interested in watching some, you know, girls finding themselves, then uh, My Mad Fat Diary is cute and girls is cute as well. Actually, cute's a terrible word for it, but it's it's worth it, let's say. So I have a lot of friends who listen to the podcast who are not librarians. Mm-hmm. 
And many of them have said to me that sometimes they'll listen to the first half when we do Mind Grapes because that appeals to the nerdy side of them. But then once we get really nitty gritty about library stuff, they'll often bail. <laughs> so only your friends have told you that because my mother and brother have told me that. <laughs> Maybe John has told me that yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, I try to listen to them all. But sometimes I keep the library bit for later. <laughs> Like like pushing the vegetables away. Oh, thanks. After. No, I mean, some people yeah, love vegetables. There are two kinds of people in this world. Yeah. People who eat their broccoli first and people yeah. who eat their broccoli last. I'm actually, yeah. I eat my broccoli first. <laughs> Me too. That's sort of yeah. bad analogy. <laughs> but either way, um, sometimes we do like to step a little bit farther away from the library side of things. Yeah, this is supposed to be both a podcast for librarians and a podcast for nerds. Yeah, and so to that end, we've decided to kind of create a new segment um, where we kind of uh, don't really talk too much about librarian things at all. and yeah, delve uh, into nerd culture a bit more. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, we're calling the segment Nerd Alert. Thank so, you, John. Yes. Welcome. <laughs> so welcome to the first, uh, first rendition of Nerd Alert. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam, what are we going to be just kind of ruminating on in our nerdy subculture today? So we've been talking a bit about um, fandom as identity. Uh, And part of the reason why this was brought up for me recently was that John Roderick, who's one of my favorite fellow podcasters slash famous indie rock musicians, as famous as you can be and still be an indie rock musician. (laughs) um, He wrote an article recently, I think for the L.A. Weekly, called Why I'm Not a Fan. Mm -hmm. And John Roderick, if you listen to him talk, is a pretty big nerd. Like yeah. he's super into Tolkien. He, you know, he has a lot of sort of weird, like sci-fi fantasy sort of interests. Um, holds his own in those kinds of conversations, and so it was interesting to see that from him. Uh, but really, what he was talking about was that he's very uncomfortable with the idea of of defining yourself by what you love. Mm-hmm. by making lists of things that are created by other people and then looking at your lists that you've made and seeing them as either yourself in list form or sort mm-hmm. of a creative act in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I have some problems with some of the things that he said in the article, but I thought that it was an interesting topic. Yeah. And for us as as nerds, and also for us as librarians who are often pigeonholed by other people as sort of having an identity that's very much based on on the collection and arrangement and consumption of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this I thought this would be an interesting topic for us to to delve into. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and so kind of talking about our our personal relationships with fandom mm-hmm. and the way we identify as as fans of things and 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 how that's I feel like it it's it's kind of at a weird place right now because of things like Tumblr. I feel like being part of a fandom is much more kind of common and accepted than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I think defining yourself through the things that you love, being able to list your favorite TV shows or albums mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. in conversation with other people, kind of used to be a really sort of niche culture sort of thing. I mean, we were talking before we started today about High Fidelity mm-hmm. and the structure of that movie being around sort of, you know, his top five his the mixed relationships, tape. right? Yeah. And the mixtape or the album collection and like, you know, organizing the album collection autobiographically and yeah. all yeah. this and sort of his whole life in these things that he's collected and, and consumed. I think at one point he actually does say you are what you like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that sentiment is echoed in a lot of ways by a lot of, of nerds and a lot of different sort of nerdy subcultures. Mm-hmm. Comics, mm-hmm. science fiction, music, whatever, and it, it, I think it's also partially that people within those 
subcultures prior to the current sort of nerd renaissance that we're in (laughs) found it a little harder to relate to other people than people with maybe more mainstream interests. And so it was a way for them to build community with each other. It was a way for them to reach out to people outside Mm -hmm. of their subculture. And, and I think you're right. That structure has now, along with the rise of nerd culture into the mainstream, become a structure that gets grafted onto everything. There's like a, you know, a hockey fandom now or whatever, which is ridiculous, right? But, yeah. but that same nomenclature, well, that same structure is being used. Arguably, this like sports fandom is one yeah. of the oldest forms of fandom in a certain, like this is a perennial, like the, the old jock versus nerd, like sports, mm-hmm. sports fans versus nerds is like sports fans calling people nerds is the deepest hypocrisy of all you're time. Right. Like maybe right? that's the wrong example. Cause you're right. That's always been structured like that. Mm-hmm. Um, better examples might be things around like, I don't know, cooking and food and whatever yeah. that have now, mm-hmm. there's now like, you know, a, a kale fandom or whatever. Oh and sure. and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a little odd, right? Yeah. But yes. maybe it's odd in part cause we're reacting against it as almost a, a appropriation is the wrong word for this for a lot of reasons, but it's the way that we relate related to the world and that was used yeah. at least by some of us as kind of a defense and coping mechanism and now it's saying. just a structure that everyone uses for oh i like this thing so it's a fandom like right so like you know if you were playing magic cards as a teenager like a lonely teen and that's how you got your social circle or something like that mm-hmm. and then like and now but that's being a fan of magic has now mutated into some different aspect of your identity is that kind of what you mean like if you were playing magic as a coping mechanism or something i'm just picking that kind of out of the thin air but yeah i mean i think that's that's part of it and i think another part of it is maybe that i don't know i mean the ease of of using that to relate to other people and using that to define who you are in the world is now is now being used in a lot of cases where there isn't as much there it's, sure. it's funny. I think this may have a little bit to do with um, the kind of uh, profile page culture into which mm-hmm. we are currently yeah. existing. You know, mm-hmm. the kind of I remember when I created my very first Facebook profile at the ripe old age of 17, you know, because I had oh just God. gotten into university. I had just gotten my university email. And at that point, that was the key to getting into Facebook was you needed to have a, yeah. a university email that is aligned with with Facebook. And, um, you know, I remember being super into the fact that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put that I like Jack Kerouac and like people are going to see that about uh-huh. me and think I'm super cool. Like, mm-hmm. and so there is this kind of the way that we are, I mean, I hate to be one of these, you know, the way that we communicate these days is horrible well, stereotype because is. I don't, I don't agree with a lot of those, you know, Sherry Turkle can suck it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, like, but there is Dana Boyd of, forever. Yeah. There is this kind of idea that we should, you know, in, in our current, in 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 our current sort of online lifestyle, we have to be able to boil down our identities super quickly and be able to express them through whatever social media is, um, you know, is available to us. On Facebook, it's you know your your limited little profile, and mm-hmm. you know on things like Tumblr, it's what you like, it's what you reblog, or it's even your original posts. You're still kind of you know, cultivating this personality and, you know, when we, when we cultivate it through the things we like and the, the, the fandom that we participate in, Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a, it makes it an, an easy access point to you, you know, like, but at the same time, I have a really complicated relationship with that because there are a lot of things that I like that I find the fandom for 
extremely annoying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it is sort of reductive. Like if you yeah. say in your profile or whatever that you love Doctor Who, but then you don't agree with either things that are being done by the people who are actually making it or things yeah. that are being done by people in the fandom, then it becomes, yeah, it becomes well, this, problematic. This touches on like, it's kind of the opposite of like the... Um, the special snowflake profile thing, which is the way fandom is now becoming like a group of collective tribes or identities that mm-hmm. you like mm-hmm. communities specifically. Cause I think there's a difference between being a fan of something and being in the fandom of that thing. Yeah. So like I would call myself like, Hmm, what's a good example? Like I'm a firefly firefly fan. Like I really love firefly, mm-hmm. but I, but I you're never, not a brown coat. I, well, I mean, I love that idea, but I'm not like, I've never been yeah. to a convention or something yeah. like that. Like I, and I, I'm not involved in any kind of online uh, community or physical community that involves, like I might, uh, I might, for example, host a Firefly party with a bunch of friends of mine Mm -hmm. and like we'll watch all of Firefly together or something, but um, I wouldn't like ever go to an event or something, not because that's bad, but just because I don't consider myself part of that like fandom, like the communal Mm -hmm. aspect. Yeah, and I think that's part of what he was getting at. Yeah. Like he was talking about sort of, enjoying things but not being a fan of them both in the sense of of it being representative of him and also of, yeah. yeah being that sort of deeply into it um and deeply uncritically into it i mean i think mm-hmm. part of his problem too is that he's he's a bit of a contrarian and i think he kind of hates the idea of just entering into something and then once you're a fan of that thing you just go along with that See, thing, here's right? the thing i kind of disagree with that mm. because to me fandoms tend to be the most hypercritical of the things that they yeah. they profess to be fans of mm. i mean the you changed it now it's ruined that's like a trope that's like a thing that happens you know and yeah. people are always debating like when things are jumping the shark or like you look at any comics fandom online or any anything like that and there are huge debates because I'm thinking of comics specifically because they go through a lot of different writers mm-hmm. with a, within a, diff- a given character's run or something like that. There's all sorts of debates about who did it best, whether it's going well, whether it's been ruined, like, you know, oh, I hate this development, this character would never have done that, and, like, what counts as canon and what doesn't, and, like... So there are the, there's the nuances. Like, if you take yeah. it as sort of a defining your identity or your personality through what you love, it's not just that you love... Spider-Man and that's part of your identity it's that it's that you differentiate yourself from other people in the Spider-Man fandom by loving this run more than this run or holding this opinion about this particular you know girlfriend that Spider-Man had or whatever right Star Trek is a great example it becomes more nuanced oh absolutely yeah Yeah. like I mean Sam you can speak to this (laughs) yeah well and that's the you know when we were talking about whether or not you consider yourself a brown coat right I mean Mm -hmm. I I have always considered myself a Trekkie. Yeah. But do you mean a Trekker? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and again, that's a way that that means nothing to someone yeah. who doesn't like Star Trek. Right. Yeah. But within the Star Trek fa- fandom, I mean, fandom is a weird word to use for it too because it predates the yeah, concept our, our of fandom in a lot of ways. conceptualization of fandom. I yeah. mean, the c- current collect- conceptualization of fandom is based on. Yeah. The way that the Star Trek that was developed. That was really. like a pioneering fan yeah. in a lot but, of ways. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not that interested in I'm not that interested in the technical aspects of it, in mm-hmm. the sort of the ship designs and the uniform designs the learning and, and that kind of stuff. And exactly. And I'm also not that interested in meeting the people involved. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the other big aspect of fandom culture that that is problematic sometimes right yeah it escapes me too like and that kind of convention culture like we were saying i've never been to a brown coat convention and 
mm-hmm. you know what? I probably wouldn't go. <laughs> I, d- I don't know. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's like, I think it, I mean, at this point, I wouldn't even really want to go to Comic-Con, which I think makes me a terrible nerd. But well, at this point, it's just reasons, getting, like it's just around. getting so crowded and yeah. packed. Mm-hmm. And like the idea of waiting seven hours just to sit at the back of Hall H and, you know, maybe see uh, an actor that plays a character that I really like, like that, that is so unappealing to me. Well, it's, yeah. this is where fandom meets the like popular ideology of celebrity worship, right? Mm-hmm. So like where nerddom collides with like, you know, people collecting so-and-so's used napkins, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? Or even like, you know, sports autographs and things like that. Yeah. Right? Oh, like yeah. sort of going to sports conventions, which actually I've done more of in my life because of my dad mm-hmm. than sure. I have anything to do with any of my more nerdy interests. But yeah. Sure. But yeah, I have very little interest in meeting the people involved in the things that I, like the people involved in creating the things that I enjoy. I mean, there's a few exceptions to that. If I could meet Douglas Adams, I would jump all over that. But, um, and it's not a fear of them being assholes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think yeah. uh, when it's we like went to see Welcome to Night Vale, yeah. I didn't stay, but I didn't stay because I wasn't feeling well. But I, I didn't have a lot of interest in staying. Like mm-hmm. Melanie stayed after and she got you know photos with Cecil and um, Dylan Marin and got things signed and talked to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I'd rather just enjoy the thing itself. And so maybe we need, I don't know, maybe we need more nuance on the scale of how we define a fan or how we right. define yeah. fandom. I or have more of right? the Troy Barnes uh, thing where I'm worried that. <laughs> you can't disappoint a picture. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I've met now, and I use met loosely, but like I've been in the same room and had something signed by Neil Gaiman, George R. R. Martin, China Mievel, and who else? I think those are the. Hmm. big ones that I've like you're right there's a piece met. of it that's just really intimidating and it's just yeah. like uh, or a William Gibson too yeah. and, but like the only encounter or uh, any of those that was actually satisfying to me was China Mieville because we got to actually speak like <laughs> we actually and we spoke essentially not maybe as equals but like we were both part of a conference it wasn't a con where I was going to like yeah. petition his Signature. You hadn't or paid like for, that. I hadn't for the pleasure of standing in line to meet him. Yeah. You know, it was just like, oh, we're both going to this conference. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so academic. Yeah, like so literary it, conference. It had an yeah. actual, like, it felt like a genuine encounter as opposed to like this weird quasi-religious, like, I'm collecting this relic of you kind of thing. Which I think speaks to the the sort of collecting as creating issue Mm -hmm. that Roderick brought up in that article, which I thought was really interesting because part of the intimidation factor of meeting someone who's created something that you love is feeling, feeling inadequate next Mm -hmm. to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that exactly what you're saying. I mean, you were, you were relative equals in this context, right? You were both working within this field in some way. Yeah. And so that made it, See, I don't know, is, more comfortable encounter. It did. This is why I think cosplay is actually kind of awesome. Because cosplay, it's like, or something, not that I do cosplay. You're creating something. But yeah, you're channeling yeah. your nerddom, or even fan fiction. Like, you're channeling that energy into actually mm-hmm. doing something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and making a thing and being inspired, yeah. as opposed to a kind of like, as opposed to signature uh, grabbing. Like, I'm, 
I say this as someone who has signed books. Mm-hmm. Like I yeah. do, I have done that. Thing. Oh yeah, me too. But w- every time I do, it's always I'm always very self conscious of like this is a really weird thing to be doing. Yeah. Why yeah. am I uh-huh. here? Like what is going on? For me, there's always an anxiety around like uh, you know what am I going to say to him while he's signing uh-huh. my book? John Green. Yeah. I said the dumbest thing to John Green. When I he thought it was pretty good. Book. I think it was not bad. It was one of those things like you know like in in a very st- stereotypical teen television shows you know they'll say something and then they'll walk away being like stupid 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 yeah. like yeah kind of <laughs> that's what i kind of did with john green what so, did you say oh i said like thanks for coming to the cold soggy north or something that's dumb not like so that. bad that's not that's so at bad, least more no. specific than you're awesome man which is True. what i said to mark maron oh. <laughs> but anyway <laughs> um, you know you come up with these eloquent things about how people's work has changed your life and then yeah yeah, yeah. but even that can come off as sort of sycophantish and unpleasant yeah yeah know? and i think i think you're hitting the nail of this on the head in terms of like the more productive way to take these things and use them as part of your identity yeah and not just as like a thing to use to relate to other people or a thing mm-hmm. you enjoy yeah. and so you you define your tastes in other things against it or whatever is yeah. that creative piece right Mm -hmm. and i think one of the nice things about these fandom communities that have grown on the internet in places like tumblr or archive of our own or whatever is that it's a place to not just interact with people but also be creative around Mm -hmm. the things that you enjoy i mean Mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about like what happens when you disagree with Mm -hmm. a move that's been made by the people who are creating the thing and i think in previous in previous eras you would have just complained you know to other people online or mm-hmm. to your friends who enjoyed the same thing or even just you know to yourself if you had no one else to talk to <laughs> about it whereas now there's this engagement in like creating headcanons and metas yeah. and fan yeah. fictions around these things and it really does become sort of a creative act and you also have access to the creators themselves in a lot of ways i mean many of them by their um, you know, by their publishers or by their studios or Twitter even just feeds. by their own, yeah, by their own volition, have Twitter feeds, have social media outreach. And, you know, it's sometimes it's a little bit shooting it off into the void, but, you know. I think you're right. Like, they are, they are more accessible, but I don't think that, I don't think their relative accessibility has much to do with the more creative things that are going on within these fandoms. Mm. I think, mm. actually, the more distance, the better in some, some of these cases. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know, it's the whole the author is dead thing that we were talking yeah. about earlier in kind of a literary context, but yeah. it's a very, I love this thing, I love this one aspect of this thing, I love it so much that I'm going to extrapolate from it. Yeah. And then what becomes part of my identity is my act of like creating something based on this thing that I love, Yeah. which is pretty amazing. I mean, I think if Tumblr had existed when I was in high school, I would have been a happier teenager. <laughs> it's oh, because yeah. you get this opportunity to not just connect, but like co-create yeah. these realities around these things that you love. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny when sometimes those realities can be foist upon you a little bit too. Um, like when you mm-hmm. when you decide you choose that this is the thing, like I'm going to use myself as an example here. <laughs> okay, I like Pokemon. Uh-huh. All right. I like Bulbasaur. But now I've kind of created my online identity around this weird figure. Uh-huh. And so now, you know, I get a lot of Tumblr posts of people, you know, tagging me with Bulbasaur things. And, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's really cool. Um, there's a part of me that regrets <laughs> choosing yeah. this yeah. really strange, esoteric piece of childhood fictional video game thing um, as my kind of avatar, you know? Yeah, and I think... 
I don't know about you guys, but like as a person who gets really into things, which I think mm-hmm. is part of the hallmark of a nerd oh, yeah. in any context. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That you, I've had lots of issues like that in my life where I'm like, you know, in March I get really into, oh, I had a little period in high school where I was super into Rugrats. Huh. Okay. And like, I really love Chucky. All right. For like a month or whatever. And then like six months later, my birthday comes around. People get you Chucky stuff. And all anybody got me was like little figurines of Chucky. <laughs> yeah. And and it was sort of a weird, like disappointing experience that like <laughs> this thing that I was really vocal about at this point was the thing that people remembered about me. Oh, like I think sure. that sort of building your identity on things that you love can also backfire because it, it allows other people to reduce you to that thing because yeah. it's easier for them to relate to you that way. But by all means, keep sending me Bulbasaur stuff. Usually it's pretty cool. <laughs> I still do kind of love Chucky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that I was thinking about was that like... In fandom, what a lot of it seems to not always inevitably revolve around, but what sometimes happens is that instead of just loving the thing, you know, the piece of art or the show or book or whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's like as if anything that has contact with that thing is somehow imbued with its essence. And you have to learn, I think it sort of comes from DVD extras and making mm-hmm. of um, featurettes that you see on DVDs. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I've spent the time to become an expert in this thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, like, I've obsessively learned all about it. So in Star Trek, it's knowing about all the actors or, um, you know, how they did some particular special effect. Mm-hmm. But it can also just be like, like, I think about Game of Thrones like this. And I love Game of Thrones, uh, both the, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire novels, and I love the show. Um, and I think the actors on it are great and everything. Like, they're really wonderful and for, I don't for a moment begrudge them like their online presences or anything like that but there's a certain like worship afforded to them like you know it's not that it's just that you love Arya Stark it's that you really love Maisie Williams and if you're a, a true yeah. fan of Game of Thrones then you like follow all of this stuff and it's like oh Kit Harrington ate a sandwich in London my god you know? <laughs> I would watch Kit Harrington eat a sandwich <laughs> but you, but you know what I mean that, that investment of time it becomes natural for that to become part of your identity because you are investing so much time and effort in learning so much Mm -hmm. about this thing Mm -hmm. and your identity as someone who knows a lot about this thing that you see as really important becomes who you are right but that can also kind of backfire too when you know when you it can make fandom intimidating Sometimes, yes, I think um, you know yeah. when you when you get those people who are expertises. I'm thinking I'm thinking particularly of also the kind of ideas around fake geek girl culture. Mm-hmm. You know, like the you know being accused of being a fake geek is is somehow this like really horrible thing because uh, you know you don't know if you don't know everything. Well, then you're just a poser. You're not well, a and real it's this fan. Really interesting knee jerk reaction against the mainstreamification of yeah. fandom. Right. Yeah. Totally. I mean, it used to be that if someone liked the thing that you liked in the eighties, if someone else liked X Men, mm-hmm. then chances are they knew as much about it as you did. Yeah. yeah. Right. They 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 didn't. There wasn't so much sort of there wasn't so much of a spectrum <laughs> of, yeah. of liking these things because they were still sort of underground. So there was you know this immediate sort of um, intense connection with other fans, mm-hmm. and now and now people are dabbling, and that's good, yeah. right? I mean, at its core, as a nerd who loves a thing and thinks that it's an important story for people to be exposed to, we should be glad that more people are dabbling. 
but we're yeah. so it's so easy to become that knee jerk sort of well you don't really like this thing well this yeah, comes do, this comes right? back to identity right like and I actually f- have felt this with Game of Thrones a mm. little bit because mm-hmm. I was very much like a lover of the books mm-hmm. and now that there's uh, a really popular show um, some like petty reptilian part of me is really like resentful that it's mm-hmm. so popular and yep. that other people know of these things uh-huh. um, and mm-hmm. so it's it's because what it is it's a bit of your identity just got stolen or distributed yeah so like now everyone is a f- it's this is like how hipsters define themselves right <laughs> like you know oh only i like this thing or i like this before it was cool you yeah. know and and I'm actually a much greater expert on it. Like, you know, I know all the house sayings and all. Did we just out all, the all hipsters as actually nerds? Because <laughs> we did. Well, I think, I think it's more that within nerddom, there's this sort of knee-jerk hipsterism. Like this kind mm-hmm. of like, there's an elitism within some segments of nerddom where there's an element of it that is like, I am a bigger nerd than you. Um, like yeah. I'm a bigger expert. I'm a um, I'm more into this than you, and therefore I guess superior. And I feel like that is so tied into sort of social structures. Like some of that comes from I love this thing and I've become an expert on it, and so I'm you know a better nerd than you about it or whatever. But I think a lot of it is also it's also self defense. I might not be cool or successful or whatever, but I know everything there is to know about this thing and you couldn't possibly appreciate it the way that I do. Like yeah. it is this way to feel superior about something, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's definitely fed over into, um, into a lot of infighting for sure. Yeah. But like to bring it back to sports, it's kind of nothing new, you know, like, mm-hmm. like being, you know, thinking of things like baseball cards and basketball stats like my you know my nephew who's crazy about basketball knows everything about the players he knows how tall they are he knows how much they weigh he knows how many free throw shots they did last season how many they made versus how many they didn't like he you know to to know these numbers but i i feel like he maybe even the sports community is a little bit more lax about stuff. I was like just gonna that. say I think it's much easier to be a casual basketball fan yeah than it is to be a casual fan of I don't know Avengers is a bad example now because of the movies but like X-Men or Star Trek or something right? yeah um, there's less yeah. backlash against you and I think it's it's there is a history of sort of self-assuredness in <laughs> sports fans that maybe there isn't in in nerds yeah, yeah I don't know enough about sports fandom I mean it, it can get pretty intense but usually the hostilities in sports because it's inherently competitive mm-hmm. um, whereas most fandoms are not necessarily inherently competitive with something yeah gamer culture is actually an area where that's not true where there Ugh. are now competing they're gonna be uh, started on gamer it's culture toxic right now. <laughs> it's interesting yeah, like on the sort of like visceral like gladiator yeah. level though mm-hmm. you go to your system when you're watching a sports game like yeah. it it will end there will be you know well sometimes but then sometimes you have riots afterwards yeah you know mm-hmm. yeah but i'm thinking maybe some of the vitriol that comes from being a really rabid fan of something and seeing someone appreciating it the wrong way mm. in your view mm-hmm. is that there's no other way to get that out of your system you don't get that same vicarious sort of adrenaline from just watching the thing yeah i don't know that's interesting well i mean the thing about a sports game is it's pretty unequivocal ultimately about the facts of the thing right Mm -hmm. like someone won someone lost and basically the disagreements can be about how well it was refereed to a certain extent but other than that it's really like who played better 
You know, it's sort of hard to argue yeah, with that. It's not speculations about characters' backstories yeah. and relationships with each other Deep and what happened before or after. And, yeah. 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 And the motives of the creators and the future of the thing and all sorts of stuff, like all sorts of other issues get brought into it. You know, like sports don't really have a narrative in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think baseball fans would argue with you there, but there, I, I there's take There's a your narrative point. that gets created, right? But no one, I mean, you can say like, I wonder where this team is going this year or something like that. But like you, no one's planning that out in the same way. Well, I'm thinking more in terms of like the lives of the players themselves. Mm, Oh yeah. I mean, and actually it's funny. We're talking John Roderick here and another story that he tells that I love is the story of never understanding why people got so into baseball until Mm -hmm. a friend of his, I think one of the guys from the presidents of the United States of America took him to a baseball game Mm -hmm. and started sitting there telling him, all of the stories of the players. This guy just came up from the minors and he mm-hmm. had, you know, this kind of childhood here and right. he used to play on a team with this player and it became this sort of like epic Arthurian tale of this, to of this it, baseball basically. player. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, I don't think we're that different, but no, that's true. I mean, I think there, there are huge similarities, but they're not identical. It's an interesting. Yeah. And they thing. certainly don't occupy the same place socially, even now. Yeah, the, I think so they're a lot closer than both nerds and sports fans are totally comfortable with. Yeah, because they tend. To, I mean, that's increasingly you can be both a sports fan and a nerd, and I'm sure lots and lots of people are. But traditionally, those were two very different types of appreciating something. You know, mm-hmm. two different. You know, if you were a sports yeah. fan, and again, two different into, ways of identifying yourself yes. against another group in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, and I mean, identifying yourself against things is interesting too, right? There yeah, are, mm-hmm. there are people who not only define themselves as a fan of X, but also mm-hmm. as absolutely not a fan of Y, yeah. right? Yeah. And often for seemingly arbitrary reasons, or Sometimes. or the reasons are, you know, not understandable. Well, sometimes. I mean, Do you have an you have an example in mind? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> Sadly, that's the thought that's not going anywhere. But, but it um, is this sort of, um, again, it's it's a very knee-jerk, very human thing to do. I like mm-hmm. this thing, so I can't like that thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. I well, mean, Star Wars versus Star Trek. I was Trek. just going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. For sure. And that says something deep about your personality. You like the Yankees or the Mets. Right? Yeah, yeah. You like Star Trek or Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. And, and you the, like, to use a deep cut from my own adolescence, Matt Good or Our Lady Peace, right? <laughs> like... At least, I mean, the thing about sports that's weird is that it seems ultimately super arbitrary, right? Because it's like, it's where you grew up or it's where you live, but usually the players aren't even from that that area mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. Certainly that's true in hockey. I, don't, I, mean, I, I think that's true in a lot. I mean, people get traded all the time. Yeah, but yeah. I think the I think the one that um, that is really interesting, just to bring it back to like the Trek versus wars and, and, mm-hmm. and how a lot of the, a lot of the things surrounding those say very different things about your personality when yes. you say you like so so like you know if you like Star Wars you're one of the rebellious kind of nerds you have you know you you you're identifying with the with the rebels right whereas oh. Star Trek is this super regimented very militaristic very well organized thing that's about exploration but kind of exploration within these very particular things like rules. See, that's you know? hilarious to well, me. Well, people are constantly breaking those rules. I, but <laughs> I would read as the total opposite. If, if really? I would read, if you were a Star Trek fan, then you are probably a secret communist, right? Mm-hmm. Because well, you, you long for a future when we've transcended such petty individualistic concerns as money. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Star Wars fan, you're probably a little bit of a secret fascist who yearns for the great hero to come in <laughs> and like mess- messianically save everyone 
Yeah, you know, a cast you're of smarter heroes to rule the galaxy. You know, yeah. like to tap into the, like the the Volk, you know, the force, <laughs> the mystic well, force see, of the and people. Th- or this something. is I feel like this is an encapsulation of this whole conversation because there's two interpretations. And then where I went was just immediately, well, if you're a Star Wars fan, you're very into the action and the flash mm-hmm. and the special effects and the sort of heroics. Whereas if you're a Star Trek fan, you're much more into the sort of the intellectual conversations around these issues of exploration and science and whatever, right? You went hard SF versus science fantasy almost. Yeah. 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 Versus like space opera or whatever. Yeah. 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 I think, I think my, my view of it currently is colored by uh, a movie I saw recently that was like a very nerdy, it was a star Wars centered movie. Was it fanboys? Yeah, it was fanboys. Yeah. That's a really interesting movie. It, is it an deals with a movie. lot of the same issues that we're talking about here. Yeah, because they do have Star Trek fans in that movie, played by Seth Rogen, oh, Seth Rogen. In, yeah. in, like, nerd teeth. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to make yeah. it clear I don't think all Star Wars fans are fascists. <laughs> <laughs> or that all Star yes. Trek fans are communists, actually. Because <laughs> I, I would identify with both of those fandoms slightly more Trek than Star Wars. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but I can well, imagine people like, oh, how dare you? The Empire are the real fascists. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, all of this comes back down to to personal interpretation, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. your average fan has every right to take a thing they love and interpret it in whatever way makes sense to them and then use that as part of who they are and how they relate to other people mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a new thing no i mean i take i take roderick's point that that in some sectors it's getting a little out of control mm-hmm. <laughs> and that also what you were saying about our online identities being so curated and and mm-hmm. made up of pieces of other people's creations that can be a problem but it's also it's also a boon i mean imagine if everything you've ever experienced that was created by somebody else was stripped away from your personality. I mm. think there'd be less left than we think. Well, I mean, there's there's a kind of way in which things like fandoms are taking their taking the place of older cultural institutions. You know, like religion is dying, and especially organized religion is dying in the West in large parts of uh, mm-hmm. North America and elsewhere. Um, sure. Yeah, the new Pew survey that just came out is definitely revealing yeah. that. I mean, sure, the Bible Belt is still a thing. Like, yeah. there are lots of religious people out there, but increasingly religious people don't go to church or, um, you know, they, they're religious in a much, or they're spiritual in a much more sort of nebulous way. Mm-hmm. So the traditional kind of communal human gathering places and are, are kind of waning, whereas, you know, things like fandoms, I think, are kind of stepping into... This is dabbling yeah. in some rather dilettante well, socio- no, I sociology think, I think that I don't really know what I'm talking about. Though, because, well, and it's funny, I think we should link to this. There's an Idea Channel video about Doctor Who being a religion. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but also, I think what you're saying is very true. We live in an era of, I mean, we're almost a century into this sort of North American individualism that's come mm-hmm. to define our culture, right? Yeah, and I put square some scare quotes around that, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and maybe this, maybe the growth of fandom is a reaction against that. Is is a, is proof that we need to commune with each other around common interests and goals and whatever that we're not all, you know, that we can't all be our own special individual snowflake. That's living well, in the woods by ourselves writing our masterpiece like about fandom in part is that it's sort of a mutation of both so like with your religion and stuff like that for a long time you were born into a particular faith and raised in it or something like that i mm. mean there were converts 
absolutely and still are but fandom is something you really choose it's very agentive like you you don't get born a star wars fan necessarily well. maybe nowadays that's <laughs> Tell starting that to sam's mother maybe that's starting to show up but like i mean there are kids who are named like cersei Tyrion, you know jamie aria or whatever the third <laughs> yeah. but like you know, you generally fandom is something like I like this thing, so I will align myself with it. As it's, opposed yeah. to, it's like getting to wait until you're 13 to decide if you get baptized or not or whatever. A right? bit. It's like a bat mitzvah. <laughs> a little bit, but it's even. I think it's even more agentive than that yeah. because it's it's ultimately about your subjective opinions on things. And like, sure, those subjective opinions might be deeply informed by your cultural background and how you grew up in your education, but ultimately, like. To become a fan of something, you have to have been exposed to it and then sort of choose to be like, I'm going to appreciate this thing and become involved with it in some way. Yeah, I'm going to investigate this more deeply. Like, yeah. no one passively accepts a fandom, I guess is what I'm saying. You don't just receive a fandom in the same way that, say, you, you, for example, you um, like receive the nationality in which you're born in. Like, mm -hmm. you, you don't choose that, right? That's thrust upon you. Essentially, it's imposed and it's a part of your identity whether you like it or not. Um, whereas fandom, you can renounce at any time, so to speak. And so maybe that's what it is. I mean, maybe it's just sort of choosing those elements of your personality. Mm -hmm. And certainly other movements in other other arenas outside of the things we're talking about, television and movies and whatever, when you yeah. think about music and think about the punk movement, mm -hmm. yeah. that's exactly what that was. It was choosing your own path, right? Yeah. yeah. I think when, when all is said and done, you know, this, this article, I, I really, I can identify with a lot of the things that John Roderick is saying, but... I think when it really comes down to it, I am a fan of things. Yeah, I think I am too. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't call myself involved in too many fandoms, but I would call myself a fan of lots of things. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. In the sense of, yeah, the parts of it you pick and choose and decide to enjoy inform how you move through the world. Yeah, right? I mean, I think I'm a fan in the sense that I passionately love certain works um, mm -hmm. and appreciate them and... Like, we'll go back to them. I'm not done with them. Like, I will continue to read and reread them or whatever. But I'm, I'm not necessarily involved in, like, <laughs> higher, you to in proselytize and foist them on other people, yeah. which we yeah. all do, yeah. right? That's an interesting yeah. aspect mm -hmm. of it, too. Yeah. All right. Good talk. Good talk. Definitely. <laughs> it was really interesting. I'm exhausted. They got a little rambly, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're talking about something as as near and dear to, well, your identity as as, yeah. as sort of being a fan and being a nerd is to uh, the three of us, uh, you you go off on a lot of tangents. Yeah. But hopefully you guys found that interesting. Please tweet at us, send us an email. Absolutely. Let us know sort of, you know, what fandom means to you, what it's mm -hmm. like for you being a member of a fandom or deciding not to be a member of a fandom these yeah. days. Definitely. And yeah, let us know if you if there's a particular fandom that you find interesting because of its uh, the way it interacts with its um, creators or uh, with the way it interacts with each other. Let us know because we'd really love to to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, more. it's always really interesting to watch people sort of, you know, taking in the things they love and then putting out interesting commentary creations, mm -hmm. community building. Yeah. And I just want to say also thank you to so much to the, the people in our fandom. <laughs> yeah. As small as you are, we love you so much. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've been we've been selling more buttons lately, and we very much appreciate everyone yeah. who's uh, thrown some shekels our way for those. You can find those on our website at sslibrarianship.com. And uh, they're wicked cool. So please, mm -hmm. if, you've, uh, if you've got a few shekels, do, do chuck them our way. 
Yeah. Really um, we great. should also say thank you so much to John for joining us again today. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily for any specific interviewing of him, but just because we knew that he would be an interesting person to talk to about this topic. Yeah, because, so. you know, being a PhD in English literature, sometimes it almost makes you an ultimate fan of something. Professional nerd, one Pro- might say. Professional nerd. I think that's Absolutely. kind of what we are, too. But oh, anyway. yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, as far as the social media scene, we're just kind of slowly climbing on, on all fronts. Uh, we're almost at 400 on Tumblr and mm-hmm. we're almost at 550 on Twitter. So um, welcome to those of you who found us that way. Um, and we, we really hope that you enjoyed And the thank you for sticking with us. If this was your very first episode, yeah, it's an intense one. This is a long episode today. <laughs> so sorry about that, Chief. But oh, uh, <laughs> never apologize. Never surrender. <laughs> And uh, I guess all that's left is to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song Glasses off the album Artificial Heart. We officially bought our plane tickets to Florida. So we are all set for Joko Cruise Crazy 5 in 2015. Uh, If you're coming along on Joko Cruise Crazy, let us know. We should Mm -hmm. meet up on the boat. Yeah, (laughs) I won't be there, but you know. I'll be there in spirit. Absolutely. And also, if you go, if you actually do go to Harry Potter thing, I will cry a lot. I'll take lots and lots of pictures for you. (laughs) Okay. I'll buy you a wand. I guess uh, then that's it for us this guy, this, oh God, this week, guys. I'm telling you, this conversation (laughs) sent my mind for a spin, but uh, either way, I guess we'll just have to uh, catch you on the proverbial flip side.